Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Matt Jones Podcast. I believe we're on 83, but every time I give the number, it's wrong. So whatever the last one was, this one is the one right after that. I've taken about a week and a half off of these. I may do one more this week, and then we'll do some next week. I've been here in New York where it's hot, um, but uh, opening up a little bit. And I'm very happy to be joined by... You know, I remember this guy when nobody knew who he was, when he was just like, you know, he was just Charlie from the block. And now he is one of the like progressive leaders in America, Charles Booker. Charles, how are you? (laughs) Man, you know, I love you, man. It's good to be with you, brother. Good. Um, By the way, a little KSR question before we get everything else. Somebody called in and asked if anybody ever called you Chuck. Did you ever go by Chuck in your life at all? Yeah, yeah. Some people call me Chuck. That was uh, my nickname through most of college. And all my family calls me CJ, Charles Jr. Okay. All right. Well, I call you Charles and and I got a ton of stuff I want to ask you. But let me just start with this. I want to start with the question I think most of the people listening to this would initially ask. And, And for those of you that don't know, I assume all of you do. Charles ran Senate for Senate, lost by 16,000 votes in the primary to Amy McGrath. Uh, who's now going to be going against Mitch McConnell, one of the all-time best comebacks in the history of American politics, nearly pulled it off. On a personal level, what's this last week and a half been like since you got the news, or two weeks, I guess now, since you got the news? Yeah, you know, it's been the uh, full spectrum of emotion. You know, I was telling uh, someone else that the period from election day to when the total was counted and released uh, since this was such a new uh, process and a lot of the information wasn't public for a week, um, it felt like, you know, waiting for Christmas, uh, you know, midnight. Every was that day. the longest but week of your life? It had to it be, was, wasn't it? It was pure purgatory, man. Like, it, it, <laughs> it was tough. And, you know, I, in the meantime, though, it was really inspiring because so many folks reached out, you know, and, and it hasn't really stopped what folks are saying how, um, they feel like they can stand up and speak out too because they saw, you know, a regular guy like them doing it. And um, it's, it's been really incredible to see the energy continue. Um, but yeah, it was tough, man. It was tough. Well, I mean, you know, I know that when you started the race, and we'll talk about that in, in a little while, but I know when you started, you probably didn't think it was likely you would win, but there came a point where winning was certainly within the grasp. And then when you get the, the totals, it's so close and, you know, you can easily go. I remember you and I were on a bus and I said something like, I hope it doesn't come to a point where you're like, if we had done this or done that. What are these two weeks like just on a personal level? Because yeah. my mom lost an election by 57 votes, and it really yeah. bothered her for a long time. Has it been like that for you, or have you been able to kind of get over it? Oh, and, you know, it's, it's going to stay with me, um, part of, part, partially because of what we were able to accomplish against some incredible odds. And, you know, for me, I always believe, because, you know, I'm, I'm so um, led by my faith that, this was the right message for the right time. People were ready, were demanding real change. And just the way I show up uh, created an opportunity to do something incredible. So I just felt from the beginning 
we get in this thing, we're going to win. I don't care if no one else believes it. Did you I really, I mean, did you really believe that? Like from, oh, from yeah. moment one? Okay. Yeah. Well, from, awesome. from the beginning. For you. Now, but there's a moment when it becomes real, like, oh, wait a minute, we could actually win. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and when that hit, um, it was really humbling because I said, nobody gave us a chance. People were blocking us out. And, and that's how Kentuckians feel all the time. Nobody ever gives us a shot. And man, we left it all on the field. We left it all on the field. We did a whole lot with the little. We built infrastructure. And then when folks finally caught on and money started coming in, we knew what to do with it. We were organized. Folks were fired up across Kentucky. And man, I, I compare it to like a analogy. If you're like a team and you're down like 50 points in the first half and folks wrote you off, then all of a sudden you go on this run, you're hitting everything. The other team's fumbling the ball out of bounds. And it came down to that last second shot and it went in after the buzzer. Yeah. No, it's like, well, it'd be like Kentucky LSU 94 when the cats were down 31. If then they lost at the very end, like, you know, you make this crazy run and it doesn't happen. I hope though. And I hope you're proud of, I mean, I, I, I called you right after it was over and, and I wanted, you know, it's, it, it's no consolation. You wanted to win. But, I mean, I hope you're proud of the fact that, look, if you'd had another week, you'd have won. If, if, the, if some people hadn't sent their mail-in ballots early, you'd have won. I mean, like, it was right there. And what you accomplished was really amazing. Yeah, man, I'm so proud. I, everywhere I went across Kentucky, and I, that's why I picked up this uh, Ashland T-shirt that they can't see, but you can, that, man, I'm proud of Kentucky. Uh, we showed what we're made of. We're sure, we're, we showed folks to not ignore us. Uh, that we don't care what the big money says, what the outside consultants say, that we're going to stand up and fight back. And we did it. And from that standpoint, we absolutely won. Uh, mm -hmm. Because that's bigger than this election, man. That's long term. That's the work you've been pushing for, demanding, calling out the change that we need. And I'm so proud to be a part of it. Well, all right, let's go through all this because it's a, yep. it's kind of a, a, an interesting story. And I want to talk a little bit about, for the first time, you and I can talk a little bit about some of the stuff that we kind of went through together. So I called you a long time ago. I mean, it was, you know, probably a year and a half ago when I was still thinking about running and I was serious about it. And I said to you something to the effect of, Hey man, you, you ought to run for this. Like whether or not, and I barely knew you at that point. I mean, I knew you, we, we had worked some together, but we hadn't, we, we weren't close. Yeah. And, and I said that a year and a half ago and you were kind of like, yeah, I don't know about all that, but it was clear. I wasn't the first person to mention it to you. When did you get the first idea that maybe this was a race you wanted to enter? Man, you know what? Uh, first of all, and, Thank you for thank you for being you, man. Um, you know that when you called me and you gave me that encouragement, you know, and you were like, "I'm not bullshit." I almost cuss. I don't know. If no, you cuss. can cuss. Listen, what do we care? Right. Look, this is like I want this to be like real people talking, not because I'm not a politician. I don't really think you are either. So, like, I want this to be so you say yeah. what you got to say. All right. Well, well, I cuss on the house floor, so you know I cuss here. No. <laughs> but you know, I when you and when you told me, I was like, well. I can tell he's not bullshitting me and that you really believe that, you know, everybody has a voice that deserves to be heard. And that regardless of what you did, you, you wanted to encourage me that I mattered enough that, that Kentuckians matter enough that I should consider it. And, um, 
man, that meant a lot to me because I had this thought. I didn't realize it was about U.S. Senate, but it was early last year during the session when we were getting a lot of stuff done in the face of, you know, a, a Matt Bevin and, you know, teachers were showing up and we were loud making noise. And, you know, it, I felt like there was something new happening, like there was a new energy. Um, folks were getting out of their comfort zone to, to speak up. Minors are standing on the tracks. Folks are just at this place where their backs are against the wall and they're fighting back. And I just knew we had to do something to honor that. Um, and it started hitting me in my spirit that, well, maybe I'm not supposed to run for re-election. Like maybe there's something else I need to be doing. And uh, I kept hearing, you know, because people talk and, you know, people would say, well, Charles, you should run for this or that. And they, they do that now. I'm sure they do it to you now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, well, I appreciate that. And I sort of dismissed it. And I was like, well, wait a minute, maybe I should consider this. So it was about like late February of last year that I started praying on it for months. And I didn't, I didn't really even want to consider it um, because I, I had a good first term. You know, we were building some momentum in the house. Um, I knew that if I ran for reelection, I'd probably be unopposed. And I didn't want to consider running for anything else. Um, but it started becoming clearer over the summer that we needed this. And, um, you know, like I said on the trail, you heard me. My granddad told me if you if there's a challenge, you don't run from it. So so but I see that's what I like about first. you. I mean, part of the reason I called you and said and I, and I want people to understand where I was coming from. I mean, I it was very important to me that somebody run against Mitch McConnell that had a chance. And yeah. I didn't want, I was worried that sort of my presence of thinking about it was keeping people out. And I, I was, I felt like I owed it to myself to not make the decision until I knew, but I also didn't want my inability to decide to make other people then not have the ability to get in, especially when Amy McGrath got in and I thought it was very important there be a challenger. I wanted to make clear that like, look, whatever I do, I want you to do. I had similar conversation with one other person that's not a progressive, but that was kind of on the more moderate side and had a similar thought. I was like, look, you need to do for you. But what I specifically liked about you, people don't know this, okay? You worked for a long time uh, state representative, representative senator, uh, uh representative, both. Both. <laughs> both. You, you worked for Gerald Neal. And I think you have respect for Gerald Neal and you yeah. decided at some point, even though you worked for him to run against him. I remember when that happened saying, that's one of the ballsiest things I've ever heard. <laughs> like how, did, but, but you did it because you thought it was right. Talk to me about what made you do that back then. Yeah, you know, and like I said, I've worked at every level of government and, you know, I was the staffer for everybody. And one of the people that took me under the wing first was uh, Senator Neal. And to this day, I love him. You know, somebody's fighting him, they're going to fight me too. Um, but my decision to run wasn't about him. Um, it was about the same conviction that made me okay with running against Mitch McConnell, that I don't, I don't care who it is. I want things to change and I want things to be better. And in and, and that way, I'm not a politician because, you know, I'm going against all the rules. Uh, but, you know, and I told him, you know, the same thing that I told you is that, you know, I, I saw a lot of struggle growing up and I don't want to give that to my daughters and I want to do everything I can. And um, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, you know, 
BS is BS and um, rationing insulin doesn't care about your party. And, uh, you know, so that's why I'm in these spaces. There's not a lot of people that are in elected office that can speak the story that I share, um, that see it from the lens that I do. And that's why I connected with so many of the uh, representatives and electeds from Eastern Kentucky that speak with a very similar story about poverty and the struggle and being ignored. And um, that just means a lot to me, man. And, and I think by telling that and pouring that out, like I'm pouring my heart out. You know, that's I'm not true. But at the same time, me. at the same time, this is your mentor and he couldn't have liked it. I mean, he could yeah. not have liked like you guys get along now. But how did that work? Like, I know he wasn't happy when you decided to run against him. How did that relationship like get back together? Well, you know, I mean, I, I've been working to continue to earn his respect and under, and let him know that who I how I show up is who I am and that. You know, I, I'm I'm here not because of politics. And even if we disagree, I'm still going to be looking for the way forward. And so, no, he was mad at me. And I would uh, think so. You yeah. know, I, that's an understatement. And, you know, and I and I learned a lot. But one of the things I'm proud of, you know, as a young person, like I wanted things to change. And I'm a young guy. Like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And I want to encourage anybody that's thinking, well, what do you do to make a difference? Go for it. Like, show up. Speak out. You know learn take it in and understand the, the the arena you're getting into but don't be afraid to jump out there and honestly i learned a lot of it from him you know i know his first run at office and you know when senator powers was uh, in office and he was essentially saying that it was time for her to go um so you know no it, it there, there's still a lot of mending to do, but you were but like he the, me in this race. He did. Yeah. You were like he the did. guy in the old drug commercials when they were sitting there and the 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 dad comes up to the kid and goes, "How? Where did you learn to smoke weed?" And he goes, "I learned it, Dad. I learned it by watching you. That's kind of <laughs> how you were uh, with Gerald Neal." Well, okay, I don't think you'll mind me saying this because you talk about this in the book in Mitch, please, when I interviewed you. But people are used to politicians having a lot of money. And they're used to even people considering running, having a lot of money. That's just an assumption. You would never run, especially for an office like U.S. Senate, unless you had a lot of money. You said to me that part of why you did it was you're just like trying to get by like the folks across, like a folks around the, the state. Talk about that. I hope you don't mind me bringing it up. You mentioned it in the book, but I think it's an important part of your story. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not ashamed of it. You know, I, I got a lot of bills. Um, I got to still make sure I keep the lights on. And, you know, if you, so I'm a state legislator and I, I've worked multiple jobs for the past few years to take care of my girls. And I'll tell you, you know, going to Frankfurt, um, even though it's a part-time job, it is not part-time. And so I yeah. had to let go a couple of jobs. And so, you know, it's, it's still tight for us now. Um, but that to me was a part of the power in this, that I knew it wasn't about how much money I had. Mm-hmm. I knew the conviction in my story and the power of bringing people together could surpass any dollar amount. And that we need to start doing things different in our politics so that folks that come from where I come from, you know, are on the wrong side of the tracks, don't have a lot of money in their pocket, still know that their voices matter and that their lived experiences are valid and valuable and can help impact policy. So I'm living by example, man. I've, you know, my, both my girls are mortgages and I'm broke. 
<laughs> even right now. And, you know, and I'll be okay. You know, I, I was, I was taught how to work hard and, you know, I'm going to take care of my family, but you know, this wasn't about making money. Um, and it wasn't about a personal aspiration. And I just hope I can inspire more Kentuckians to know they deserve to stand up too. But do you know how, I mean, do you, let me say something. Do you know how refreshing it is to have somebody say with confidence, I'm broke and you're not worried about, like, I love that about you. That's who you are. I love that you said, I'm not ashamed about it, but also like so many pop people that get into politics would have such massive egos that they could never make a statement like that. Yeah. And you say it. And I, I think that's a big reason why you relate to folks so well. And I want to tell a story about you really quick. I, you, you did an event at my bar in Lexington. And then we did four events on the road where I rode with you in Bardstown, E-Town, Bowling Green, Glasgow. But the one that stood out to me was at my bar because, okay, over the years, I've been doing that bar. We've had some pretty big folks in there, right? We've had Rex Chapman, you know, we've had the governor, we've had Amy McGrath, we've had the barstool guys, like we've had people yep. who are sort of celebrities there. And my staff has never cared. And they've also never cared about me. Like they've like never, like the, the people that work there, like it's just our job, like it's a restaurant. And when you came and spoke, we probably had 60, 70 people there. But what was most interesting to me is my staff, my cooks that came back from the back, the folks that work in the back cooking that food that nobody sees, they all asked if they can come out and watch it, like five guys. And not only did they come out and watch it, I watched, they hung on your every word. And when it was over, one of them came up to you and you gave them your cell phone number, which yes. I still can't believe you did. I think the reason you connect with people like that is they see themselves in you in a way that I don't think any other politician, even ones that are progressive, whatever, that just doesn't happen. They see you and they see themselves. And I just think that's really powerful. Man, I'm, I'm humbled by that. Um, you know, I, I just believe that, and I, I give my mom a lot of credit for this, for helping me understand that you know, even though we come from struggles and we've seen difficult things that we're more than conquerors and that, you know, that we matter and that we deserve to shine. And um, I've just found that my my gift is being able to bring people together and to use that as a mechanism to influence policy. And so I just show up. And, and you know, when people ask about, you know, my policies and how I can talk about issues that you may not think you can talk about in, you know, places that are, are red and I'm using air quotes because, you know, the only reason that areas are red or blue is because of engagement. Um, I think you can change politics by showing up. Um, but, you know, I just had this belief that if I show up and shine my light and show love, um, we can build bonds. And I think part of it is because I got a big ass family and I had to do that growing up. How many brothers and um, sisters you got? Man, so I'm an only child. Oh, that's okay. the crazy thing. I'm like one of the few, but I'm uh, but my grandparents had eleven biologically, and then they had they had their home open to foster care for over forty years. Oh, and, okay. And so they adopted, and yeah. you know, so so we uh we have like a small town of a family, and you know, I had to share everything from from the beginning of it, and I I think it just taught me a lot of good values that I carry with me now, but. I'm grateful, man. Everywhere I go, um, somebody tells me that they feel like now their life matters and that they're encouraged to fight back and 
they never trusted politicians. They never cared before. Now they do. And, and that's the work. That's what we got to do. And I'm going to keep that going. How many people did you give your cell phone number to? I couldn't believe you were just handing out. But you did. You just hand out your cell phone number to people. Well, I, it's, at one point, I looked at your security guy. What was his name? The big dude? Uh, oh, Chuck. Chuck. Chuck I, I was like, dude, he's got to stop that. Like, he's going to have people. How many people did you give your cell phone to? Man, my phone rings all day long. Well, that's why yeah. you don't ever answer me when I call now. Is yeah. that you've given it to everybody. So. so, So the rule is, you know, because I give my phone to everyone, if you call – leave a message and text me and I will get back to you. Uh, but, you know, I just, that's some of that old school politics that I, I, that I do admire, you know, when people didn't hide, uh, yep. when they talked to you, even if they don't agree with you and they, you know, they respected you. And I just, I, I want that again and I want to do my part in it. And so, so yeah, I've given myself on that a lot. Like we'll have to get you, we at least got to get you a second one because at some point yeah. it's, it's got to be overwhelming after a while. Um, yeah, I'll retire this. This number is going to move into like an office for like constituent services. That's a good so idea. it won't go away. But yeah, I'm going to get another one. All right, let's uh, let's talk about the about a year ago when you and I did get together there at the Heine Brothers uh, in uh, off Bardstown Road. And and what I had at that point, I was very serious about running. Like, there was a period of about three or four weeks where I kind of in my head thought I was going to do it. And a lot of my sort of consultants in Washington believed that even though I'm not as progressive as a lot of people, that progressives were not going to like Amy McGrath and that I could sort of be in that aisle of people. And they said to me, it's very important you get Charles not to run because he will take progressive votes and then you're going to be fighting with her for moderates and you can't win that way. So when I met with you, I was never intending to tell you not to run, but they wanted me to, and I had to tell them I would meet with you. And from the moment I talked to you, it became clear to me that you were likely to run. And I said to you, whatever I do, I want you to do it because I could hear, I asked you during that meeting, why are you running? And your answer made me say, I can't look at this dude and tell him he shouldn't run no matter what I do. When somebody would ask you at that moment, why are you running? specifically like the little 30 second stump speech what was the answer to that well when i'm running for i was running for survival and i'm still running like I'm, i may not be running for office right now but you better believe i'm not stopping and it is for survival i really do want things to change i i'm i'm tired of poverty i'm tired of seeing folks struggle um, i've lost four cousins the last four years and i just believe that if regular people stand up and fight back and come together that we can make this place better. And I love Kentucky. And, you know, that that has been my story. And I love this place, man. I, this is my home. And when somebody disrespects your home and disrespects your family, you fight. And the people of Kentucky are my family. And so I'm fighting back. And um, a lot of people uh, stood up to fight too. And, and you know, I'm just, I'm just proud. I'm humbled. And um, Why do you think you have the love of Kentucky? Like a lot of people in Louisville, especially honestly progressives, I've talked to over the years, they like to say I'm from Louisville. They don't like say I'm from Kentucky. And I and some of that is sports, but really not all of it. There's a sense yeah. from a lot of people in Louisville. I was talking to Ja'Cory Arthur, who won the council race, and he said for my entire life, I would tell people I was from Louisville, not from Kentucky. He goes, now that's starting to change because of Charles. 
but it wasn't how it was. But I always heard from you that you loved Kentucky. Why is that? Was it from your Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife stuff? Um, well, it was, it was before that. I always felt like this, far back as I can remember, and working at Fish and Wildlife was the best job ever. If, if Preston wasn't, wasn't born, I would have still been there. Um, you know, I, I came back home to help Tanisha and deal with the girls and stuff. But, man, I always felt this, um, this broader understanding about how incredible this place is and also just how counted out we tend to be. And, and Ja'Cory and I live close to one another. Um, but for me, coming from the West End and feeling invisible and feeling all these different uh, frustrations and traumas um, gave me this underdog type of mentality where, like, you, you count us out, but I know how brilliant we are. I know how powerful we are. I know how much love we got. And everywhere I go across Kentucky, like, I see that. And I just want to fight for it. And I think part of it is both my parents being ministers and, uh, you know, doing mission work and, and working in communities across the city and across Kentucky. My dad helping to build churches. Uh, like, I just always had this sense of knowing that, you know, we were incredible and somebody got to fight for us like they care about us. Um, and so I just internalized that. And again, like, because my family's so big, it made it really easy for me to see everybody as my family because I, they probably are anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it was a message. So, so you felt a connection to people in rural parts of the state, maybe specifically Eastern Kentucky. And it reminded yeah. me of in like 99 or 2000 when I went to Transylvania, which at the time I was there was like an all white school. There was a handful of black students. Jesse Jackson came to speak. We were having a lot of racial issues there. People were like, why don't we have any black students? And I sort of, was like, because we have a, a dorm named after Jefferson Davis and one of the fraternities marches in Confederate uniforms and you wonder why black students don't wanna come here. So they invited Jesse Jackson to speak and Jesse Jackson got up in front of a crowd that was like half white transy students and half Kentucky African-Americans who came to hear him, right? And this is in like 99, 2000 and he says, change will come when the poor white people of Kentucky and the poor black people of Kentucky realize they have more in common than yep. they do with the people they think they have in common with elsewhere. And yep. like, I just sat there and was like, that's it. You, that is exactly right. And that sort of transformed the way I looked at a lot of things. You had a similar message. Where did yours come from like that? Yeah. And I mean, that's when I say from the hood to the holler, that's what I'm saying. You know, I'm, I, if we realize our common bonds, if we see one another and realize that we're family um, and we get past our geographical divides, uh, the racial divides, the silos that have been built around us, that we can do anything and that we will be and we are unstoppable. Um, and, you know, I, it's hard for me to say where it came from. I just know I've always been this way. Uh, like when and, and I, like I, said, I think my granddad, my parents teaching me this, but. I was always the one that took up for the folks that were getting picked on um, and getting left out. Like I was always that guy that would like go check on the person that was like by themselves and stuff. And, and I felt like that. And mm -hmm. I think that's why I wanted to do it because I know what that feels like. And so for instance, with the miners um, in Harlan County, when they were standing on those tracks and I saw the picture 
of them and I could see their faces. I was like, man, I know that look, like the look in their eyes. I knew that look. And um, I just wanted to be there with them. And so I, I'm not, I'm not really sure why I'm wired this way, but I'm not ashamed of it. And I know that it is powerful. Um, and out of it came from the hood to the holler, a movement of a new wave in Kentucky that honestly, man, you helped to inspire and you helped to carry. And I'm, you know, we're going we gonna to keep this work going. Well, I, to me, what that message you're saying is not even like as much about partisanship or ideology as it's just like commonality so for instance yep. you and i would disagree on some issues i think you and i would disagree on the green new deal i got in an argument with one of your campaign guys on the bus <laughs> didn't realize his background was a green new deal and i immediately i felt bad because i didn't realize like he's like mr green new deal and i was like green new deal that's not gonna work and he was like <laughs> he looked at me like i was from the moon and i and i felt bad i apologized to him later but but my point is if you, I've said this for a long time, if you believe in goals, then we can disagree on methods. And the yeah. thing that I think that people don't realize enough is I think 80% of Kentucky, 75 or 80% agrees on goals. We may disagree on methods, but the problem is we elect people who don't even agree with us on the goals. So we elect right. Mitch McConnell, we elect Rand Paul, we elected Matt Bevin, and they don't agree with the 80% on the goals. They don't agree that everybody deserves health care. They don't agree that everybody deserves a great education. They don't agree that everybody's equal. We elect them because we elect, we, we make our arguments over methods supplant goals and politicians yep. are not able to articulate that and you articulated it it's something i say all the time and that's one of the reasons i decided you were gonna be the first person i endorsed i mean i've had other friends run i yep. endorsed you because you realize it's not about the methods it's about the goals yeah i mean it's it's almost like the inverse of like the southern strategy or any like broad uh political effort that will divide folks as a way to amass power. And by flipping it on its ear and saying, before we dig into the nuance of policy and get lost in the weeds and forget that we're fighting the same thing, let me tell you what I'm fighting for. Let yes. me tell you what I believe. And that way, when we disagree, you will know that I'm rooted in the right place, or at least you know where I'm coming from. And that way we can figure our way back together. It's, it's like being, uh, it's what I thought ideally of when I would think of someone being a statesman, like someone that could build coalitions and see through the weeds and find those common bonds and get shit done. And, you know, there's two realities. One is those days are gone in politics in a lot of ways. Unfortunately. Um, but they don't have to be. I mean, they don't, they don't have to be. That's you know? right. And I think we can get them back, but I think we can do it and be even better because even when we were at a better place politically, a whole lot of people were still left out, you know? And so, so you got both of those dynamics, especially in Kentucky, which had been one of the most disenfranchised states, you know, poverty has been pervasive. Turnout is typically lower. Like a lot of folks said, you know, we just trying to survive. We ain't got time. And, and so I do believe that we can get back to that place, but we can do it and be even better because we have more people at the table now. I think liberals make the mistake too much of worrying about 
the method and not the goal. So I, I had two meetings. One was in Louisville, one was in Lexington, where I, where somebody uh, got a huge group of liberals together. I completely, Charles, bombed the one in Louisville. You may have even had friends at it. Like I just, I completely screwed it up. Most of it was my fault. I did the thing where I talked too much. But part of the problem was they asked me, are you for Medicare for all? And I said, well, maybe not. Are you for the Green New Deal? Well, maybe not. They were concerned very much with the policy. So then I approached the Lexington one different. I started it by saying, look, I think everybody should have health care. We can agree to disagree how we get there. I think we have to prioritize cleaning the environment. We can agree to disagree how we get there. And it was, I got a much better reception because my Medicare for all thing is just, maybe that's not the method, but you and I agree, we both need to get healthcare for everybody. And if we agree on that, reasonable people will come to the method. And I just really appreciate that you see that. I I feel like even people on our side aren't as open-minded about that as you are. Do you think your time in the legislature helped you with that? Because there are very few people in the legislature as progressive as you are. Yeah, it, well, being in the, in the state house definitely helped. Um, it helped me see that it can yield results uh, with me being the policymaker. I was the staffer. I had drafted legislation. You know, I worked in Metro Council. I was in the mayor's office. I worked with LRC. I've seen this stuff. I knew that it could work. But to be the one in response, in the, the role of responsibility and have to build relationships and tussle with folks that disagree with me on a lot of things um, and still get stuff done, it, it really opened my eyes to not only is it possible in real terms, but we can do it right now. Um, and I, I'm deeply grateful. I did not expect that going into the house. Um, I built some relationships with folks that I didn't think would ever say a word to me. And um, how many of them ended up endorsing you? I mean, you you had an unbelievable amount of endorsers from that from the Democrats in the House. How many was it? Yeah, well, by the time it was done, because we had a couple more come in that we didn't we didn't put out because everything just got it was a hurricane at the end. Everybody was endorsing. Um, But we had over 20 members um, in the state house, uh, the Democratic caucus, which is over, you know, over the majority. Um, endorsed me and all of the House Democratic leadership, which I've never seen that before as relates to going against the big money, the DS candidate. Um, And man, it's really just a testament to uh, what you and I've just been talking about. You know, I had some folks that were like, you know, well, we don't necessarily agree with you on everything, but we know you're fighting for the right reasons. And we trust that if you take a stand, you're not going to back down on us and you know, even like with the Medicare for all situation, one, that's a big sprawling piece of legislation. Um, there's a lot of iterations of what that means. Um, I say what it means for me, but I frame it by telling you my story first. You know, yeah. like I, I nearly died twice from diabetic ketoacidosis. And I'm like, when, when you in that hospital bed, you don't care if the person is a Democrat, Republican, <laughs> independent or whatever, you're trying to live, you know? And I think when I, when I frame it that way, um, it gives folks the chance to say, okay, let me take it in. Cause I can't deny what he experienced. And so if he's saying that he supports something because of this personal connection, I got to at least respect the fact that he's telling me something that means a lot to him and I'm going to hear him out. And then when you do, you can work together. And yeah. I, I think, you know, you, you shown that to be true. 
All right. So give me at some point you went from, you were kind of treading water for a while in the campaign, probably wondering when am I going to hit the spark in yeah. your mind? What are the three or four things that happened during that campaign that were really important for you to sort of really have a shot to win? Yeah, man. So we, um, you know, I knew that we could win and I, and I believe that, and there were moments where I was like, man, is this it? You know, what are we doing here? And something just kept saying, if you stay in and you keep doing the work, you're going to win. And um, one of the things that really flipped it for me and, and let me see the light uh, was the, um, the COPE board, AFL, uh, the unions taking a position to not endorse in the race. Yeah, because that was, there, was big. A, there was a lot of pressure for them to get behind Amy McGrath. You know, she had all the money and DS backing her. Um, you know, well, we can talk about that later. And they decided to not endorse because, uh, and several of them spoke up saying, well, Charles has been on the picking line with us. He sponsored the legislation to repeal right to work. Like, how could we go against this guy? And at that point, we had probably had maybe $200,000, if, yeah. if that. And, uh, you know, she may have had like $30 million or something. And, and that was one of those moments where I was like, wait a minute, maybe we got something after all. And then the uh, legislators endorsing, I didn't, I asked them, because that's what you do. You ask folks for support. I didn't think they would, not yeah. like that. And, and then, you know, and honestly, man, your endorsement was huge. Um, I think it helped to tell the full picture of the story. Um, and, you know, because at that time, and then the Herald Leader and Cure Journal, which was, that was a big deal. Uh, but national support was starting to perk up. Like they, they were starting to mention that there's a black guy running for Senate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then I started getting calls. And, you know, I was making it clear that, you know, I appreciate folks like uh, Bernie Sanders and Senator Warren uh, for endorsing me, but this ain't about them. This is about Kentucky. And you stepping up to endorse helped to tell that story. Um, and I, I just knew we had all the right pieces. Um, we, we built it the right way. It was bigger than party. Um, and it was bigger than the narrative that Mitch McConnell would want to frame it as. And, you know, I know they are breathing a big sigh of relief that, uh, <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. You <laughs> yeah, know, you know, when I knew that it mattered that when I knew that it was real was when I did that video, and I got up the next morning and there were 650,000 views of it. Okay. Cause I've been doing videos forever and a good video will get 50 to 75,000 views, a big one, 150. And when there were 650,000 views of this video where everybody was making fun of my eyebrows, I was like, you know, this is, uh, you look good, man. Don't worry. No, nah, those eyebrows, it was this lighting. I'm never going to let Rachel get live down this lighting because my eyebrows do not look like that normally. But anyway, I was like, this thing's real. And you and I had met, see a lot of people think, I mean, it's clear that all the protests sort of also lifted you a little bit. Yeah. But you and I met before George Floyd was killed. We again sat at that same Heine Brothers and I said, man, if I endorsed you, what do you think? And we talked about it and I kind of felt like you, you needed a spark, but that it was there. But then I knew when I put out that video, when I saw how many people watched it, all of a sudden my phone's blowing up with national media people going, 
what are you doing, man? Like you, like, like, cause I, when, when I was thinking about running, I got to know all those media. I ended up talking with all of them because part of my strategy was going to be getting the media to write a story about me. And they're all mm -hmm. like, why are you putting your credibility on the line for this guy? I knew then you had a shot and I was telling people the next day, man, he can win. And everybody was like, yeah, Matt, whatever. And over time people came with me, but yeah. at first I, I don't think people realized I knew when I saw many people watch that video, you, you had a shot. Yeah. And, and you know, the reason I didn't mention like the protest and everything around uh, Brianna and, and Mr. McAtee and all of, and all of that is because by that time we already knew that, we had the pieces in place to really compete. We didn't think we'd raise the money that came in at the end. Uh, we were ready to just do it with $75,000 on top of what we'd already raised, but we knew how to do it. We had the volunteers in place. We had the support. We had the ground game even during this pandemic. And and honestly, you know, the stuff that happened with the protests and that is still happening, that, that was not, and it isn't political, you know, and it was really a matter of saying, okay, well, how do I show up in a way that's helpful? Um, not to score points or to be an opportunist, but to be there with my family. How do I do what I, I love this place. I say, I want to fight for it. How do I show up now when we, when we're needed the most? And um, I think what ended up happening is just that it shined a light on like what we were already talking about, the way that we were already building uh, something that's bigger and, and pushes on structural change. And now, you know, the reason people aren't going home is because it's not just about the right. officers. It's yeah. not just about Breonna Taylor. And, and I think people felt that, and I think they feel it across the country and they looked in the crowd and they saw me, you know, not, not because I'm special, but because I care and I have the willingness to show up. And um, I think that's what we need in leaders now, folks that will show up, and just keep on showing up and do the right thing. And, um, you know, a lot of folks were like, well, you know, the protests are the reason that you got, you know, you got as close as you did. I'm not here to dispute that. But what I am here to say is this was not a campaign that was looking for a protest. Mm -hmm. This was a campaign that was standing up for regular folks that have been ignored. And the reason those people were in the streets protesting is because they were getting ignored. Mm. And they needed a voice. They were looking for a way to effectuate change at the ballot box. And they saw someone that was actually out there with them. Um, you know, and so I, I think this is a moment that we can't let pass. And, um, you know, even though we didn't win uh, at the ballot box for this primary race, uh, we've inspired something really big and it's not going to stop. I got to do two or three things and then I'll let you go. Let me, I, I want to mention on the Breonna Taylor, David McAtee, because people don't see the protest every night, although they're still going on. I mean, it's not on the news yeah. every night now, but they're still happening. Where do you think that is? I mean, the attorney general today said, well, we're looking at it and, and, you know, what to the, where is the Breonna Taylor case and the David McAtee situation in your mind? Yeah. And, you know, I also want to give some love to Tyler. Um, you know, Joe Gertz, uh, relative that uh, yes. was their document story and uh, lost his life too. Um, man, I think, I think what we're seeing, and it's remarkable, um, but it's important. We're seeing how the system works and, and what we are witnessing is people 
in real time pushing back on that. And we're, and we're seeing in response the system, you know, resisting. And what I'm saying here now is that people are going to win this because one, we got too much power and two, folks realize now that if they are quiet and go back home, their door can be kicked in. So they're not going to go back home. And um, I mean, it, it's, 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 ch- it's tough for me as a, a Louisville, as a Kentuckian to, to see, you know, my city um, dealing with so much trauma and, you know, it seems like there's not um, a clear vision of how this gets resolved from the administration. Um, but I do see a lot of resolve in, in the people that are demanding change and pulling uh, politicians along, pulling organizations along. And I just believe that we'll be better on the other end of this because we're not going to stop. And, 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 and But very technically, where things are is um, the attorney general um, has a job to do. What happens if he doesn't? I get this question all the time from people of all political parties. They say to me, Matt, what happens if the attorney general does not charge those officers? And, and look, I don't know what he's going to do. Yeah. But I think there's a decent chance he doesn't charge them, at least doesn't charge all three of them. What happens? What do you think? Yeah, well, first of all, history shows us to not be surprised if that doesn't happen. Um, and, you know, I, I think that everyone in elected office should be very aware of what this moment means and not blow by it. Um, there's too much evidence on the table. And this is one of those things, you know, if you if you look like I do or if you come from a place like you're very familiar with where you don't have a lot of resources, you don't have a lot of political power, um, the system tends to put its foot on your neck and the process works to dismiss you. Um, but if you are within the institutions or if you're within a place of power, the system will work to protect you. We already have seen what happened. And at this moment, if the attorney general does not act to provide justice, if the local leaders don't ensure that justice is, is done, they can, can, they can expect more unrest. They can expect people to cry out. They can expect folks to activate their collective power. And what I'm telling them to do is get ready to run for office, get ready to vote, get ready to organize. Don't ever be quiet ever again. Um, I don't know exactly how that's going to look. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a resident. Uh, I'm, I'm a citizen here. And I want things to be peaceful. I want us to have peace, but we got to have justice so we can. And I just, I hope that they listen and are responsive to the people of the community that are crying out. All right, let's switch gears for a second before we finish and talk about the elephant in the room, which is the situation now with the, with Amy McGrath. So Mm -hmm. you and I both have histories with Amy McGrath. Mine is different than yours, but certainly (laughs) exists. Yours uh, exists as well. So what's going to happen now? Like, I mean, do you, are you committed towards working towards helping her defeat Mitch McConnell? And if the answer to that question is yes, what do you see yourself doing over the next few months? And do you feel like she has reached out to you? As a side note, she hasn't reached out to me. She should reach out to you before she reaches out to me, but she certainly hasn't reached out to me. Do you sense her wanting to make you a part of this? Um, well, so I did, I called her, um, you know, after the, one on, uh, after the election, 
And then once the uh, results were final, you know, to say that there's a bigger goal here. And mm-hmm. there, a lot of the reason why, you know, during the campaign, folks were sort of pushing me to attack her. It's like, well, this ain't about her just as much as it's not about Mitch. Like, uh, we got to get Mitch out of the way so that we can transform our future. Like, that is my message. I really do mean that. And so my my focus was never about Amy McGrath. And in coming out of this primary, I'm trying to make it clear to folks that this still ain't about her. <laughs> and I need her to understand that because it wasn't about me. If we don't actually listen to the people of Kentucky and and honestly speak the truth on issues and inspire folks to believe things can be different, deal with the real struggles folks are facing, Mitch McConnell's going to stay in that seat. And we cannot afford that. So what I told her is what I'm telling everybody. Um, every moment I wake up, that I got breath in me, I'm going to be doing everything I can to get rid of Mitch McConnell because he is that terrible and he has to go yesterday. And I think how that looks for me is um, really continuing what we've built in the primary. Like we built a lot of infrastructure. We can use that to keep people involved, um, to get more folks registered. You know, the executive order was pushed through that was part of um, my bill for restoration of voting rights. Um, hundred over 150,000 Kentuckians got the right to vote. We need to make sure every single one of them know that and are registered and know how to use their power. And I, I can help with that. And and then also, will I'm, you, I'm will, you, will, you, will you campaign with her? Well, I'm going to do everything I can to help her. I, you know, folks have asked, you know, am I going to endorse? And words are meaningless without real action. And so I'm having talks with her team now. That's what I meant to say earlier is that she did call me back and I gave her a list of suggestions. Um, some of them include reconciliation, some stuff, you know, it's, we're still talking, so I won't share it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, talk, those talks are ongoing. And so I'm, okay. I'm hopeful that they will listen um, because what we did show is don't ignore us. And so hopefully they won't. And if we can get some, get to a common ground where if we stand together, it's not BS. It's mm-hmm. not just a symbol. It's because we're genuinely working together because they're actually listening to us. Um, then you better believe I'm there. Um, so I'm hopeful and those talks are ongoing and we'll see. Dude, that's so refreshing. I really, I really appreciate you saying that. I appreciate you saying, I don't want to stand there unless it's real. Right. Like you don't want to just stand there to stand there. I mean, I, yeah. I'm going to vote for her. I was going to vote for her the day after she got me fired. But I'm not going to stand there unless I really believe it. And I like that you're the same way. And that, yeah. I think, is, is very refreshing. So the last question is the one I get asked about you all the time. What's next for you? I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can go. Of course, you could, you could run for Louisville mayor. You could run for a statewide office in 2023. I would love to. Uh, there are some offices that would be nice there. You could run against Rand Paul if you wanted to. Um, have you thought, I, I know you're not going to announce a campaign here, but have you thought yeah. about any of those and, and where, where do you see your interest line in the next few years? Cause you're going to run for something again, because if you don't, I'm going to make you. So what, yeah. what's it, what's it going to be? <laughs> well, I, what is very clear to me is that I'm not done. Like I, I got some more run running to do. Um, and I'm, I'm praying just like I did before this, this race, and talking to my family and evaluating how I can best be an impact to Kentucky. Um, 
but what I do know in this immediate term is the energy we built that had folks in Prestonsburg, Weisberg, Paducah, you know, with their fists in the air saying from the hood to the holler and, you know, in marching in the streets saying that we're family and like, we got to keep that going. And, and so what I'm doing now is uh, working on ways to pull a team together across Kentucky. And, you know, I'm going to bug you about this on how we keep that infrastructure alive and how we can use that to push on um, my central uh, issue, which is intergenerational poverty. Um, so I actually put out a teaser video about that today. Uh, so there is much more to come really soon. Um, but yeah, in terms of a future run, you know, I would just tell folks, keep their eyes on me. Oh, wow. I like it. Keep their eyes on you. That's nice. Uh, well, <laughs> listen, I, I, I feel like I learned a lot when I did the new Kentucky project thing. I mean, I think there, we, we did some valuable stuff, but I also learned some difficulties in that. And I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I was so proud when I saw Corbin, Kentucky have a Black Lives Matter rally. I mean, Corbin, Kentucky. Yeah. When I saw the, the amount of people you drew in Eastern Kentucky towns, when we were in Bowling Green, and not only did I see a huge crowd, but people who, I mean, they were like hanging on every word. And I also felt like even just the amount of strangers, including Republicans, there's a story about, I don't even know if you know this, but in Covington, you guys were gonna have an event and you couldn't find a space because the, I don't know if it was the mayor or somebody of Covington was kind of blocking you out from having a space. And there was some guy that was in charge of some little, uh, or, you know, owned a farm or something. And he was a Republican and they got him to let you use the space if you went there and they asked him why. And they said, well, I'm a Republican, but I heard him on Matt's show and he seemed like a good dude. I think there's a lot of that out there that is there to, 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 to sort of get and to sort of make yeah waves on and I, I hope that can happen yeah well you told the story in your book man and I, I think that it lays out a roadmap of if you listen to people and you go show up and you know you stand on the front lines with them and don't bs them uh that we can inspire folks to you know to, to use our voice and get folks like mitch mcconnell out but do so much more than that so uh i think one of the big things we got to do first is make sure that we get this voting process right and that people that have their rights restored and can vote are able to. Um, and then after that, we got to keep inspiring folks and we got to build more infrastructure. We were doing a lot of relational organizing in the campaign and I need more people to know about that and do it because we were equipping folks to take the lead in politics from their couch. Now the pandemic was sort of forcing everybody to think like this, but we got to lean into that stuff. We got to make it easier for people to get involved wherever they are. And um, I got some big ideas on how we can do it. Well, good. Well, listen, Charles, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this. I also want to say, I've said this to you privately and I've, I've said on the radio, but I, I'm really proud of you. Uh, you, I genuinely think that in six, eight, 10 years, we will see a different sort of class of people running for office, uh, running for the Democratic nomination, maybe even for the Republican nomination, yeah. based on some of the belief that you showed in, in being able to do this. And, um, you know, 
we might look back and go, it ended up the best way it could. You got, you were like in the Rocky movie. You got close, Apollo Creed one, and you came back a bigger star in Rocky two and three and inspired a whole new generation of boxers. So I hope maybe that's what it'll be. Yeah, man. Well, if I could just do my small part, I'll be at peace with that. And I, I think we're doing it, man. I, well, I know we are. So let's keep All it right. going. Charles Booker, thanks a lot. Ten lawyers, guns, and money. 